Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. We will be joined later in the episode by White Sox prospect and right-handed pitcher and future Cy Young winner, hopefully, Nick Nestrini. But for now, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lewandowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Not too bad. Been a little bit. This is a exciting time to bring it on back, though. I think it's a very relevant topic in terms of spring trainings coming soon. You know, we got guys coming on who are looking to make an impact soon with this team. I'm very excited to have Nick share some of his thoughts with the uh, larger White Sox fan base. Yeah, likewise. And also consider this my victory lap because this is our first episode since the most memorable moments draft and I won the Twitter or X. And no, no, post, no one even so remembers it. No one even remembers it. it no. no, it's memorable by nature. It's in the no, name, so. no, it, I, I don't remember doing that. Duke, do you remember doing that or? I dude, I, I honestly have no idea what you guys are talking about. So yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I'm lost. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, I I just... All right. Play it that way. Jeez. Yeah, I... He gives this guy an inch. He takes a mile. It's unbelievable. Honest to God. <laughs> but... <laughs> I agree with I agree with what you said with what you guys are saying though like as someone who is notoriously not excited for spring training because like I just want to see like games that matter this is the most excited I've been for spring training just because there's so much on the line for some of these guys to really have an opportunity to go to the big leagues quick so it's really cool to be able to talk to one of the guys especially last year with the trades that we ended up making at the deadline who is definitely somebody that a lot of people are looking very highly on us included but before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website, Socks on 35th. We are still rocking and rolling in the offseason, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Socks on 35th. All right, so obviously we have the interview that is going to be coming up here soon, but I do feel hard-pressed to talk about all the imaginary stadiums I'm seeing on my Twitter timeline and everywhere else. Sounds like the White Sox might be in the market to build a stadium, and it might even have the skyline in the background this time. So. Yeah, I mean, the main one that's being rumored is, I think, largely exciting. I actually, I used to live on, like, Clark and Polk, so it's, like, literally a block away from this development that's being rumored in. Kind of a weird area, honestly, right now, but definitely with what's being proposed, making it not just a stadium, but also having living spaces and working spaces and a bunch of restaurants, like, that that's a great vision. And I do think it's also kind of a nice compromise where they're still technically like the South side team, but I know Duke might have some thoughts on that. So overall, I mean, I'm, I'm excited by the prospect of it, but I also don't want to go, you know, too far down the rabbit hole because there's so much left to do, I believe from like a regulatory standpoint. And there are other options I'm sure that we don't know about that haven't been made public. So yeah, those are my thoughts for now, I guess. I don't know. I like new shiny things like, I know there's the sense of connection to where the Sox have been for a very, very long time. I get that. I, I do also believe, though, that in order to kind of – fans are not going to like me saying this. In order to get out of the shadow of being the second team in the city, you're going to have to do something that makes you an attraction like – the, the Cubs have been an attraction over the years. The, they, the difference is they have the historic Wrigley Field. For, for the White Sox, it would be look at this ballpark village that they built, like the Braves and the Cardinals, things like that. 
that's where you start to get out of that shadow of, you know, only the diehards are going down there. I think there's a lot of the good that can come from something like this, and I hope they do end up doing it. You had to bring up the Cubs. I no, said it, people no, are going right. to like it, but... It's it's the natural, it's kind of the natural thing that everybody like goes to. But like, you know, getting those casual fans in the stadium, the diehards and the fan base can look down on that all they want. That's just gonna drive ticket sales. That's gonna drive people wanting to go to a baseball game. It's gonna drive people wanting to watch the White Sox, you know, even if it's just to see the new stadium. You know, there are plenty of people like that. I don't hate the idea. I just really don't wanna see the infrastructure of Bridgeport and the south side of Chicago like be negatively affected by the potential of like having nothing in that area. One thing I really enjoy about going to the ballpark, my father was born and raised in Bridgeport and being able to support local businesses, being able to, you know, wander over to a bar that's been there forever, you know, it is really cool. Like I, I love being able to support local business. I love being able to support the economy of that area. I really do hope that if this does end up happening, that they do find a way to either repurpose that area or find an attraction in that area, because I really think it drives a lot of that local economy. And And I think that's a fair human argument to it. Like, I, I think that's a fair argument that's philosophical, not, not maybe the right word, but the philosophical argument. Do, do you build there and try and expand what you have there? Or do you go to this fresh, clean, new concept where you can literally build whatever you want in, in that area? It's gonna be it's gonna be a hard conversation, but we'll see as it goes on. Obviously, this is very early. There's not much detail yet. We'll see what happens. Definitely something that's going to be discussed down the road. If we get more information, or if it becomes like a little bit more real, then yeah, that's something that's going to need to be discussed. But you know, we we've heard every rumor in the world at this point. We've heard the White Sox potentially playing at Soldier Field. <laughs> there there has been a lot out there. But we do have a really good interview with Nick Nashrini coming up here. I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. Very well-spoken dude. Definitely has a mindset of a pitcher and definitely is a rare breed just from being able to talk to him. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. And uh, without further ado, here's Nick Nashrini. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now joined by Chicago White Sox pitching prospect Nick Nestrini. What's going on, buddy? It looks like you got some sunlight back there. Definitely on a different part of the U.S., aren't we? Yeah, we're in San Diego right now. That's where I'm at. We're actually getting a little bit of rain today. It's been raining almost the entire day, so it's one of the first ones the entire year. But yeah, it's kind of sunny out here. I guess we got a little daylight. Nick, man, really appreciate you coming on the pod. Obviously, haven't been in the organization too long, but a pretty big part of what the team's looking at towards the future. So it's definitely a pleasure having you on, buddy. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. Before we jump in to now, everybody knows the storylines regarding, you know, how you got here, what it's looking like going into spring training, all that different type of stuff. We got plenty of time to get into that, but I always like to start things like this, especially when we're kind of looking at the broader picture. Most kids love playing baseball as kids. They love the idea of going out there, playing with their friends during the summer. Most of them maybe have a thought that they can play at a major league level. Sometimes that's just optimism as a kid. What was the moment, do you think, when you were younger, when you were growing up playing, that you started to realize, like, this could be something that you could actually do? I'd say when I committed to UCLA. Before that, I really wasn't the hardest working kid. I didn't really take baseball seriously. I was kind of just playing it for fun. 
once that I saw other schools looking at me and once I finally committed to UCLA, that's when I actually realized that that was something that could be a possibility in my future. So I would say around 15 or 16 years old is when I actually figured out that it was a possibility. But even after that, going into like tournaments like area codes or PG showcases or something like that, I definitely wasn't the best one there. I wasn't always like the kid that was ranked super high or got all the accolades or made all those teams. I was like first team All-American game or whatever those things are now. I don't even know what they call them nowadays. But I was never that kind of player. So I would say like what I really, really, really thought that, yeah, no, this is actually something I'm going to go for 100% is after I got drafted. After that first little stint where I actually 110% was like, yeah, no, I can actually make a career out of this. When you started having those conversations with, like you said, UCLA and, and committing and going through the process of committing to play baseball, what were the conversations like with the coaching staff? What did they see in you, I guess, that kind of made you start to sit back and say, oh, this is a thing almost. Because like you said, you were going to these showcases. You didn't feel like you were the best one there, but certainly they saw something in you. Yeah, I mean, I was just tall, skinny, and I threw kind of hard. When you're looking at a pitcher that's a sophomore in high school, that's kind of exactly what you're looking for. So I started filling out, like really filling out, like starting pushing like 210, 215, maybe my junior year of college. But before that, I was, I don't know, 190. 195, you know, senior year of high school going to college, it was maybe 200. So, I mean, I guess the projectability aspect is kind of what they saw. But, I mean, yeah, that's kind of really it. As far as, like, the conversations that I was having with them, they liked what they saw. They liked the projectability. They liked the life on the fastball. They liked the progression that we could have had with the breaking balls to make them into plus pitches. And they liked the changeup because I've always kind of had a changeup from a young age. So, they liked those two pitches and maybe, like, the projectability of the breaking ball. So, I guess that's kind of what they liked. And going along with that, too, and maybe it's a related question, like they, they saw the fastball, they saw the life on it. I guess, how do you consider yourself? What kind of pitcher do you consider yourself to be? Is it that power pitcher because of having the life on the fastball? Is it more finesse? Is it kind of a combination of the two? Or I guess, how did you kind of mold yourself into the pitcher you are now? Yeah, I mean, as a starting pitcher, you kind of have to be a little bit of both. You have to be like a power pitcher, but you also have to be able to have a little finesse as well. You have to be able to throw that 2-1 changeup. You have to be able to throw that 3-2 slider. Like You need to be able to execute off-speed pitches in order to be successful going through a lineup 2-3, maybe even four times, going into the 7th, 8th, ninth inning. So, But you also have to be able to like have a little bit of a you know FU to the fastball and get that thing to the top of the zone sometimes because that's just kind of what the game will call for sometimes. So I've talked to hitters, and unless you're really throwing like 101 to like 104, it doesn't really matter. Their timing's maybe a little bit, like, they're going to get the foot down a little bit faster. I'm not throwing that hard. Obviously, we've all seen me throw. So, like, how many were from 94, 97? You have to be able to execute your fastball to all, all quad pieces of the plate and really throw it where you want to. But also, you got to be able to execute the off speed as well. So, I wouldn't really classify myself as, like, a power pitcher or a finesse pitcher. I think that you've got to be able to do both as a starting pitcher. Yeah, it's funny to hear you say, I don't throw that hard, you know, 94, 97, because I while I get what you're saying, it's like for a starting pitcher, especially like that's still above average, especially when you get to the top end of that range. But anyway, one thing I want to kind of press on there that, I, that I'm fascinated by is the idea of when you're in the minor leagues, obviously you're developing in a lot of different ways. And I'm just curious when you're pitching, for example, when you say, oh, I want to face hitters, you know, second, third, fourth time through the order effectively, you know, that makes sense. But are you working on that by kind of trying to find a balance between using your weapons and your strengths? Or are you more trying to develop your weaknesses? Like, how does that kind of work in terms of using certain pitches and certain counts? 
a little bit of developing weaknesses. It's a lot of game planning. It's a lot of situational uh, pitching. Like, what is the game calling for? Like, do I have runners in second and third? What hitters up there? What did I throw him in a two-strike count this first second at bat if I'm facing him for a third time? So it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of developing your weaknesses throughout the minor leagues because if you were to ask me to throw a right-on-right 3-2 changeup in high A two years ago, I would have said, hell no, I'm not doing that. I'm walking this dude. Like, that's not happening. I'm sorry. But now I feel like I've been very comfortable. I can do that if I have runners in second and third. I have bases loaded. I can go to that pitch. I can go in my back pocket. All right, here's a 3-2 change. Or here's a 3-2 curveball. Let's go. All right, here's a 2-1 fastball up and in. Like, I feel comfortable being able to do that. So it's kind of just being able to work on your weaknesses and developing that and having trust in yourself. But it's also a little bit of, like, situational pitching as well. You got to, like, know the game know what hitter, what's the situation, what's the score of the game, are they trying to drive in uh, two runs here, what have they been doing the past two weeks, like have they been struggling up at the dish, have they been missing the certain pitch, so it's uh, there's a lot that goes into it when you're, when you're talking about that. What was that hardest pitch, or I guess it, it's still a development in progress, but what has been that hardest pitch for you, is it that changeup? I feel like a lot of guys have different strengths and weaknesses, and what's been the hardest pitch for you to really gain that comfort with over time? I would say, yeah, the changeup. I mean, I've always kind of had a pretty good one, but it's being able to throw when you're behind in the count. I feel like anybody can throw any pitch when you're 0-2, 1-2, but like when you're 2-1, you don't want to get 3-1. You have a runner on second or third, first or second. You want to load the bases here. So like you want to throw a pitch, maybe like 2-1, set throwing a changeup and throw a fastball. That's where you have to kind of get smoked. Like, all right, double in the gap, zero score there. So, I mean, I would say the changeup and just being comfortable throwing that pitch at all counts because that's such a big pitch, especially for myself with the whiff numbers being where they are, especially the last two years. It's it's been a huge pitch for me to, to learn and to be confident with. I think pitchers who don't naturally throw 102 miles per hour honestly have a slight advantage because instead of just being a thrower, they actually learn to be a pitcher. And a lot of what you're explaining really makes a lot of sense, especially with the changeup compared to a fastball. When you're able to throw a changeup effectively in the zone, something that they'll be able to stare at because they were expecting a fastball, it really does help with pitch sequencing to really affect what a hitter is doing in the box and what he's going to expect from you. No, totally. It opens up every other pitch, too. Let's say you're throwing a right-on-right changeup, and everything that you have as far as off-speed goes goes away from them. If you can throw something similar speed to your slider, but something goes into them, and it looks like a fastball out of the hand, that's that's so effective. And I honestly can't even like talk about how effective it's been for me i coach a high school team i'm gonna have them listen to that little part when they keep fighting me on developing a changeup. so i thank you for this this has been very helpful for sure for sure kind of moving along to what brought you to the white Sox here so you go to school in la you go to high school in san diego you're pretty familiar with the california area you get drafted by the dodgers it's kind of one of those like too good to be real type situations and then it hits a situation where you're kind of just picking everything up and moving. For a couple of questions on this, did you expect anything coming into that trade deadline? And what was your initial reaction when you got the news? No, I did not expect it. I mean, I heard my name rolling around on a bunch of like tweets and all that, but uh, I talked to my agent and he actually told me that I wasn't getting a trade the day before I did get traded. And then what happened, I was like, ah, dang. Because like when the trade went down, we knew that it was for Lance Lennon and Joe Kelly, but we didn't know who we were sending. So there was about a five-minute period where we had no clue. And I was actually lifting. I, I, I had pitched the day before, and I was doing box jumps. And my, bo- my phone was on the box, and our farm director called me. 
as I was in the bottom of my squat about to jump up. And everybody's, because every, my phone was on, not on silent, so everybody heard my rear go off. And everybody stood and just looked at me with their mouth open, like, just breathing through their mouth, like, oh my God, it's Nick, he's gone. So, and then Leisure got a call a few minutes later that he was gone too. So, the initial reaction, I was honestly just shocked, to, to say the least. I didn't really think that that was going to happen. I didn't have a whole lot of emotions other than that, especially, I mean, maybe 24 hours after that, I was able to actually decompress and, and really think about it, especially on the 11 hour drive that I had to Biloxi, Mississippi. I was able to really think about that for a little while. So initially I actually was shocked, but I, I mean, I'm grateful for the opportunity. It's definitely a faster and straighter shot to the, to the big leagues, which is exactly what I need. I feel like I got everything I needed out of the Dodgers uh, as far as like development goes and, and just the understanding pitching and how my body works, how to best use my arsenal and stuff like that. So to be able to bring that and bring that knowledge to the White Sox and maybe help some players over here is definitely going to be something that I'm looking forward to. I feel like that's something, A, it's so rare for somebody, especially in baseball, to stay with the team they got drafted with. Even getting to the majors with that same team, you know, you see so many prospects get tossed into trades and sent around in different ways. And it's all kind of part of the process. The way you explained, like, the way you reacted to that trade, it's it's pretty similar to what I've heard with other guys kind of like a fight or flight mode where it's like okay this just happened i have to react i gotta find out where i'm gonna be living i can imagine it's just a, a shock to the system but something that you look at guys around the league they've just kind of become numb to it at this point and they're just kind of ready to be it's just kind of part of being a professional you know yeah i would say the weirdest part of it all was walking into a locker room where i knew literally nobody i've never done that before every team that i've ever played on i've always known somebody that was on the team whether it was from mutual friends or i played with them like in a summer ball league or like i was actually teammates with them at school or at high school so walking into a clubhouse where i literally knew not a single person zero mutual friends with anybody was uh was definitely really really weird i mean now we want to talk about your time with the white Sox and your future of course so starting out on a bit of a lighter note do you have any you know, I'll say favorite teammates or just, you know, teammates that you are closest with from the White Sox organization so far? Yeah, I would say that the guys that got traded around the same time that I did, so like uh, Q, Edgar Kiro, Kai Bush, and Jake Eater, we were all kind of going through it at the same time, so it was easy to kind of, you know, like bond with each other and understand, like we were understanding of what the other person was going through because we were going through it ourselves. So a lot of the guys on the team really didn't understand, and they were just kind of like, these guys are here to take our teammates or our jobs. So initially, some of the guys weren't too, too fond of us, but once we got to know them, they were all pretty chill. It's it's always interesting, too, to hear this more, I guess, human element to it. Because it, it's funny, like as fans, when doing blogging and stuff, it's like you put together a trade proposal, you research all these dudes, and then you're like, sweet, we got this guy. And it's like, but what's the human element behind the reaction? The 11 hour drive immediately after it happens, you don't even have time to process it. And now, like you said, it's something I didn't even consider. Right? It's like, oh yeah, you just walked into a clubhouse where literally, you know, nobody and, and you bond with those who have the similar experiences too. I think it's cool to keep in mind that human element. Cause I think a lot of fans forget that like, Hey, they're just people who are really, really good at baseball. They go through the same thing. If we, change jobs or something like they're humans so they just have a different profession yeah exactly i mean the first day was definitely pr pretty gnarly because kai was pitching that day so i was sitting there like the clubhouse manager sent me only hot stuff or uh, yeah, like cold weather stuff so i was wearing this hoodie in 110 degrees 
and I was sweating my ass off. It was terrible. And I had these pants that were way too tight and they were way too short. And like one of the one of the legs had the elastic on it and the other one didn't. I was there a complete goober. So I was sweating my ass off out there and like Kai's pitching. I have nobody to talk to. We're getting absolutely obliterated in this game. We're playing Biloxi. So it's like the I think Jacob Mizorosi was pitching. Churio hit a backside bomb. It was just not a good game for the Barons at all. So we got so then after that, the next day was pretty good because Kyle was out there and he was in the dugout with me. So we were able to talk a little bit, but yeah, the first day was pretty brutal because like no one knew. Like I didn't know anybody. They didn't know me. So it was kind of like catch the vibe of, of each other. So that was a little weird. But yeah, it was chill for the most part, I would say. I do have a kind of follow-up question on that. How closely are you, like you mentioned Mizorowski and Churio, how closely are you following sort of some of the other either top prospects or guys who are similar like coming out of the same draft class as you how often do you kind of follow those guys kind of like hey what are they doing or how often do you maybe make relationships with them too just based on getting drafted the same draft class or stuff like that is there any sort of that that comes across i would maybe with like the top top end guys but i mean i'm not really like in that like you know top 20 baseball america top 20 prospects it's like maybe amongst that group uh a little bit i'm not really sure i can't speak on that because i'm not a part of that but a little bit maybe i wouldn't say like i've i, I mean when you asked about like do i follow those guys yeah like if someone posts it on instagram i'll go ahead and look at the line on that i'll be on the app or like something like that it's like jack lighter strikes out 12 like i'm gonna go look at what do you like what do you punch guys out on then like who you face because like i may face those guys next week so I, I follow some guys but for the most part you kind of just do your own thing because like everybody has their own journey to the big leagues, or if they don't get to the big leagues, their journey in baseball is going to be completely different. So you kind of got to take everything with a grain of salt. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen a guy go off for a year, but the next two years after that, he's awful. So it's, you kind of just got to keep your head down and really focus on yourself. And if you if you see someone popping off a little bit, you kind of just like nod your head, acknowledge it, and like give them a little congrats. But it's kind of you just got to take every day like it's your last, honestly. As far as like relationships go with like other players and other organizations, I mean, I don't really have many unless I've played with them. Like Bryce Miller, I don't know if you guys know that is. Uh, he plays for the Mariners. Him and I played in Falmouth together in the Cape. So we play, we were in the same league, in the Texas League. So whenever we were playing each other, like we were dapping each other up in the outfield. Like I was always like secretly rooting for him when he was pitching against us. And just like something like, because he drove me to the field every day, so we were pretty close. But like if you don't play with the guy, you don't really know him. You don't like have that close relationship with him, I would say. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the development. Like you had mentioned, you know, you felt you had learned everything you needed to with the Dodgers as you were coming over to the White Sox. I guess what have been some of those differences in either just development plans or how the teams approach development and I guess how you have approached it as well as you've crossed the over between the organizations this is probably the most asked question out of players out of people like yourself coaches and whatnot i would say that the biggest difference in the way that both organizations go about it is the dodgers do a really 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 good job of explaining everything and teaching you and giving you the tools for yourself to learn it on your own as well so like for instance after every single outing that i would have with the dodgers our pitching coach, we, I would have a 30 to 45 minute conversation with him the day after I got in the day after I pitched, I got into the clubhouse and I had like a 30 to 45 minute conversation with him about 
what I did well, what I need to work on, how are we going to work on it? You know, like things that we just need to maintain. So we, we had a very structured game plan going into each week and each start and each bullpen session, each day of cash, weight room, training room, everything. So everybody was communicating on that on that front as well. Like trainers, strength coach, pitching coach, manager, front office, pitching coordinator. Everybody was in the open line of communication, and we were also in that. If we needed to know anything, they would they would let us know. But the White Sox is a little bit different. It was a lot more player driven, I would say. So there's not as much uh, guidance from the from the coaching staff. At least the pitching coaches that I I had, being Danny and Donnie, um, it was kind of like a little more hands off, do your own thing. Like if if you are seeking something come to us and we'll do our best to find it. But it wasn't like a, we're having a meeting. This is what we're doing. This is what we think you need to be doing. This is what we think you're used to just need to be like if we're facing these kind of hitters or game planning for the next outing or something like that. So I would say those are the biggest differences, just like the open lines of communication between the players and the coaches for sure. And it's an interesting thing too, because obviously you get that question because of the team you came from mostly. When you look at gold standards across the league the Dodgers are top two names of teams mentioned and I think it's interesting too you mentioned the communication aspect it's some guys really like that game plan some guys may like doing their own thing exactly yeah to ask you is it something more like you've enjoyed having a little bit more reign over your development path since you've had things be so strongly communicated in the past or are you someone that's like hey I'm, I'm when I'm with the White Sox, I'm always seeking out that information. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I am someone who likes to have open lines of communication. Maybe not like this is what you need to be doing. Uh, like this is the drills you need to be doing. This is the pitches you need to be throwing. But being able to have a conversation so that the coach can understand where I'm coming from and I can understand where he's coming from. I feel like that uh, fosters the best, you know, like, learning environment for both him and I because I don't know everything he doesn't know everything so the more that we can communicate the the quicker we can get to the goal that we're all looking forward to and maybe if I say something like he can retain that and maybe he can use that when he's coaching somebody else I would say that was something that the dollar did really well as well was uh they were able to take from one guy and like implement it with somebody else so like if it worked with me maybe it's gonna work with somebody else or it work with a different person, or maybe it's just not going to work. Maybe it's only his thing. That's all he's going to do. So I would say that's something else as well. But yeah, I'm someone that likes to open lines of communication for sure between me and my coach. I think something you said there was cool about like, hey, this is what works for me, not just necessarily being told what to do. I think especially probably in recent years, just paying attention more as a fan, players like having a say more in their development and they like being heard, whether it's at the major league level or at the minor league level, just, Hey, this is what I think too. Is there something we can blend between your point of view and my point of view as a player? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you take it into any other, any other field or industry, like if you're working in sales, like if you're communicating amongst your team, like the best way to do that is to have open lines of communication and like, you know, bounce ideas off of each other, not have one person say, this is how we're doing it. This is the only way we're going to do it because that's only going to get a very like narrow minded, like one way is highway kind of approach rather than having like multiple ideas because you never know, like if you kind of just like shut someone else's brain off and like you don't let them be creative or like maybe input some of the ideas that they have, 
you could guess a completely different product. So if you kind of like think about it in any other industry, it kind of makes perfect sense just to have like open lens communication and have like multiple people kind of spitballing ideas. And maybe if not everybody agrees with it, then like we can just shut that one down, talk about something else. But having open lens communication, I think is huge. And I feel like it's interesting to hear you talk about it like that because a lot of there's a lot of people who are like, well, baseball's. It's like no, it's it's all. There there are similarities just because baseball is a sport and this is not a sport. It's like there are similarities in terms of communication, how to approach certain things, and I, I think this is really cool to hear a player's perspective on what a lot of fans are like. You know, you, again, you want to treat it like a open, like you're saying, an open line of communication. This is not just this is how we do things because this is the sport. Like, yeah, it, it goes beyond that essentially. Yeah, it's a very like college way of going about it. Is like, right? We're gonna coach is gonna tell us what to do. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do all the drills he wants to do, and everybody's gonna pitch exactly the same. It's like okay, like you know, not everybody's gonna gonna strive and succeed that way. So everybody is a little bit different. So now you've been able to go through all minor league levels. You got a little bit of time at AAA this year. Each level, obviously, is a little bit different than the next. I think fans have their own opinions on what each level means or what the difficulty of each level is. I guess from your perspective as a starter, what are the biggest differences or biggest challenges for you, whether it's the type of hitters you face or how you approach the game as you go through each level? I mean, I get a lot of questions like this from players, especially during the performance camp, like the younger guys that, get, that get, just got drafted. They were like, What's, what the book can I do to be, you know, get to AAA quickly? And I was like, dude, like you got to kind of pump the brakes a little bit because like when you think about it, like think about like the NFL, right? When you're going from like college to the NFL, like football isn't something that you really need to like develop. Like you're either fast, you can like, juke guys you can you're really big strong and like you can just like overpower someone baseball is a little bit different it's a lot more of like a chess game rather than like up straight up like fist fight so you got to think about it a little bit differently so i would say but to to go to, to your question um just like you have to be a little bit better each i mean it's very simple you just have to be a little bit better at each level you go you got to be able to do like one or two more things. So like, for instance, like we were talking earlier about being able to throw behind an account changeups. Like you can get away with not doing that in high A for sure. Like you can just blow fastballs by guys every day of the week. Like I did it. Everybody can do it. If you're good enough, like you can do it. Like one of my roommates for all pro balls, his name is Sheehan. He goes up there and he just bullies guys with fastballs. I mean, that's what he does. And But when he got to the big leagues, he's like, oh, I actually need to like pitch a little bit differently here. So he was someone like that who could just go up there and bully guys with fastballs. But you have to be able to do like one or two more things at each level. So like you got to be able to like from double and triple it, like you got to be able to throw multiple breaking balls in the zone early in the count to get to two strikes. Or you got to be able to throw behind the count breaking balls. You got to be able to throw back to back of the same breaking ball in the same spot, depending on which hitter's hitting, because you get to a certain place and like the hitters can't hit a certain pitch. It's not like they can't hit a multiple pitches. Like this guy can't hit a slider, so only throw him sliders. So you got to be able to throw three good sliders because if you don't throw one of the good sliders good and you don't miss in a good spot, that shit's going over the fence. Like I promise you that right now. Like Jorge Alfaro, I faced him in my first AAA game. I'm like, oh my God, this guy played for the Padres last year. Like I'm upset the other guy. I know exactly who this guy is. So like I go up there and I don't throw a good slider the first pitch to him and he absolutely takes a G hack at it 
hits it off the right center field wall. I'm like, oh, dang. Like, thank goodness Clint was out there and he caught that. I'm like, whoa, like, all right, I got to be a little bit better here. So, like, I started throwing a little bit more off-seat pitches early in the count. Like, I was like, all right, I need to be executing these in, like, in a good spot. And if I'm going to miss, I need to miss in a better spot than middle-middle because these guys are going to hit it deep. Trust me, I saw it all week, the entire month that I was there in AAA. Dudes were just hammering balls that were just middle-middle. And I was like, all right, don't miss middle-middle because it's going to get smoked. So, but I would say from, like, low A to high A, like, you just got to be able to execute fastballs. High A to double A, you got to be able to start throwing one or two breaking balls in the zone each count. Um, reach hitter and triple a like you really have to be able to be consistent with your execution of off speed and fastballs because if you're not like if you don't have a pitch that day and like they know that like it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough day for you yeah so on that note i think it would actually be helpful to talk about how you evaluate yourself in terms of all this right and by that i don't mean just overall like yes i'm asking about you know what numbers do you look at but i'm also asking on a pitch-by-pitch basis when you're going back and thinking about how an outing went how do you consider you know what was good versus what was bad what needs to be worked on etc when i go back and look at outings like i want so the first thing i look at is execution like okay what pitch did i want to throw this this or like in this situation like two one what pitch was called did i execute the pitch and was it the right pitch to throw in that moment? Because I may be out there and be like, yeah, that was the right pitch. But you give me 24 hours and be like, ah, maybe I'm going to throw something a little bit different there. So being able to, to one, acknowledge that you didn't execute it. Um, two, like how, like how can I go about executing that? Whether am I working on that in catch play? Am I throwing more of those in a bullpen session? Or is it a mentality thing? And then three, is that the right pitch to be throwing that in that situation? So that kind of goes back to like game planning, my preparation before the game. Like, all right, does this guy hit behind or when he's behind in the count, does he hit off speed or fastballs better? When I'm behind in the count, does he hit fastball or off speed better? Where does he hit these these balls a little bit different in certain counts? So it's kind of understanding what each hitter does differently and using my strengths to beat him there. So just going back and like just being honest with myself. I mean, because you can go out there like I can. This happens. This happened to me so many times. Where you execute a pitch, like you throw a fastball up, but the dude hits a double off the wall. Like and it, it was two balls, three balls above the zone. He just tomahawked at it, and he just got there. So it's like at that point, you just got to tip your cap and be like, okay, yeah, right there. Like I, I, I he just beat me. That's that's all you can do. So you got to be honest with yourself and not not like have like a. I I listened to Spencer Strider talk about this a little bit while ago on something similar to this, and. He was talking kind of like, you got to be able to be okay with failure and like look at it and be like, yeah, I wasn't very good, but like, how, how can I be better than this? And like, also, like, I can't be dwelling on me pitching bad because it's going to happen. It's inevitable. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go two innings. I'm going to give up six. But like the next outing, I could go seven and strike out 12. Like, it's just something that you kind of got got to be conscientious about and you can he's this is kind of what he said about it like you can kind of like consider that like a loser's mentality but if you want to but if you want to be sane playing this game you kind of have to take that mentality because if you just strive for for perfection all the time you're gonna go absolutely bad shit crazy because trust me i've been in that situation and that mentality is miserable miserable my junior year of college it's all i thought about and i was i hated baseball i almost quit i was like i'm over this like i don't want to play anymore so, like, switching my mentality to being okay with failure and just kind of acknowledging it 
and then being honest with myself after after an outing like that is something that that has definitely helped and that's honestly kind of how i evaluate myself just being honest and going through like three little checkpoints i look at my delivery too but that's just kind of like you know how am i doing that in the weight room how can i do that in like drills before catch plays and stuff like that but but yeah i kind of went on a tangent there but there you go no it's a fascinating dive into okay the the number side versus the mental side of the game and it's insane that you kind of just threw it in there but you're like hey i almost quit baseball at ucla my junior year just because of the failure because of just the pressure put on yourself or the combination of what what kind of happened there yeah, I mean, I had the yips. I'll, I'll straight up say it. Like, I, I had the yips pretty bad. And I had to figure out myself and honestly just be honest with myself and kind of bring myself out of that, you know. It was, it was a mental battle that I was going through. It really wasn't anything physical. My delivery wasn't all messed up. I mean, there were some things that I definitely changed to solicit more strikes. But for the most part, it was a mental thing that I had to get through. And I had so many people that were just telling me, throw strikes, just throw strikes, just throw strikes. So I'm like, I'm trying to throw strikes. I'm not trying to throw the ball 45 feet every single time. Like, that's not my goal. I want to strike this guy out. I'm throwing 98. Like, I, I want to throw by him. So it was something that I kind of tried to, like, figure out. And that's honestly where I kind of got the being okay with failure, not trying to put too much pressure on myself. Going out there and just, you know, treating like it is a game. I'm just trying to have fun. Like, I like, just go have fun with it. And that's kind of the mentality that I kind of take with that from that on out yeah certainly the thing you didn't think about in that situation was just throwing more strikes i'm glad you yeah. got that advice at that like point my coach is like dude just like calm down like relax i'm like i'm trying you're telling me that is making me a little bit more stressed out dude like chill it's and it's it's stuff we've been told as kids and obviously it's elevates in terms of importance as you get old don't let the 0 for 4 turn into an 0 for 12 like it it only exaggerates itself and it becomes more important as you get to the levels where you're at. Yeah. But it's like that happens all the time. Like I can't tell I've had, I've had three outings where my combined ERA for those three outings is like a 10 or a 12, but like the three out after that, it's like of one. So it's like, you're going to have stretches where you suck. Like I'm telling, I'm like, everybody has it. Like I, I watched, I was 17 and we were at a tournament in Arizona and Max Scherzer had just gotten off, like striking out 12 or 13. And he came into Arizona when he was still in Nationals, and he gave three home runs up back to back to back. I will never forget that. We were at that game. We were like, Max Scherzer sucks. But then the next outing after that, strikes out 11. I remember this so, so vividly. Strikes out 11 and just like dices. I'm like, okay, yeah. Like that that plays, you know? Like you got to be have to be able to like compartmentalize each failure and each success. It's baseball. It's the craziest yeah. thing. It, that's literally baseball yeah. is what it comes down to. Like you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. So like from like a, like, I don't know, I've been a fan, but from like a fan's perspective, like, oh, this guy's a bum because he has one bad outing. It's like, or he goes like 0 for 12 through like three or four games during the series. It's like, okay, like simmer down. You don't know what this guy's going through. You know, like right. he could be dealing with something at home, like his girlfriend could have broken up with him. Like some gnarly shit could have gone down, but like you know, it's like he'll he'll like he'll pop off again. Like Colson would have had like a over twenty experience in Birmingham right when they got there. Like he was not heading well, but then he had like three games where he would like double double bomb. I'm like, okay, there you go, there he is. There's our number one prospect. Right. And I think that's the side of it too. And we're all guilty of it as fans. I can speak for all of us on here. Is forgetting there's a person behind the numbers. There's a person behind the performance. That's 
they're like, yeah, don't you think I know I suck that day? Essentially, like, yeah, it's the wild thing that I'm we not are... leaving the yard after going two innings, being like, hell yeah, that was a great day, guys. <laughs> like, please don't roast me on Twitter tonight. You know, like, it's it's <laughs> got to be the hardest thing to to go through. It's like, I guess my question would be like, how often do you see that sort of stuff? Or you're like, I hate social media. If I have a bad day, I'm not even going on social media. Like how how do you? I oh, guess I, del- I delete I delete Twitter and Instagram. Well, not Instagram. I delete Twitter pretty much the entire season. Smart. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I don't. I don't. I don't go on it. If someone sends it to me, I just delete the text that they that they send. I'm, like, I'm not even going to look at that. I'm sorry. You got to do what you got to do, and yeah, especially yeah, Twitter. Totally. I can't blame you. I cannot blame you at all. Yeah. No. That's all great perspective for sure. So I think just factoring all that in and how you you know how you've said you evaluate yourself based off of execution and. You know, just going back and, and being honest with yourself. How do you then transition that to this upcoming season? And and how do you feel you or what do you feel you have to do, I guess is a better way to put it, to make it to the major leagues this season, obviously having ended in AAA last year. I think more of what I was just ending the season with. I felt like the consistency of the slider was there. Um the ability to throw, like we've been talking about this entire time as a behind of the count, off speed pitches, um, executing my fastball. Uh, just more of that, but just being a little bit more consistent and having my movement profiles and my pitches be a little bit more consistent as well. And just going out there and like the coaches and the front office and like my teammates, especially know exactly what I'm going to give them at that. Like, all right, like he's going to go out there and compete. We know what it's going to look like, you know, if it's a good day, it's a good day. If he gets hit around, he gets hit around, but if he strikes out 12, he strikes out 12. Good for him. You know, so like just being a little more consistent in all aspects of, of the game for sure. One question on that, you know, you talk about a lot about consistency and pitch profiles, things like that. How much do you read into maybe some of the numbers behind each of the pitches versus how much do you leave just up to the coaches to kind of work with them and have them have suggestions for you? And then you try out a new grip or something or a new release point. It's like you then give your feedback on that and you both work with it. How much do you dive into the numbers behind things versus just letting the coaches do that and you kind of feeling your way through that. That's something that the Dodgers taught me a lot about. Uh, I know exactly what all my pitch shapes need to be. Like maybe if I'm trying to like kill a little bit of vert on my slider, add a little bit more horizontal. All right, this is what I need to be doing with the grip in order to do that. This is where my finger pressure needs to be. This is maybe, or maybe it's a mentality shift. Like, all right, I need to throw, try to throw it a little bit harder or I need to like switch my shoulders a little bit more. Or for me, like on my slider, like I think like I'm going to like, think of a piece of paper or like a square I'm going to try to like hook and like grab the back side of that piece of paper so that's kind of what I think about on my slider or if I'm getting too much vert on it all right let's get to a little bit more of the side of the piece of paper so I know what all my pitch shapes need to be and so I look at the track band data pretty pretty religiously especially during bullpen sessions because that's what I'm kind of making sure that my stuff is fine-tuned and visually that's looking like aesthetically pleasing because like I know what it's supposed to look like so I'm just looking the way it's supposed to look if the numbers are saying it's the way it's supposed to look, then I know that the day before when I'm playing catch, it's looking the same as that day playing or uh, my bullpen day. All right, and like I know I can go out there and pitch pretty good. So I look at the data pretty, pretty religiously, and I'm I I, I am kind of a, a numbers rat, but I don't pitch only based off the numbers if that helps at all. Yeah, it does, and I mean it's kind of the idea of yes, I know what these numbers mean. I know what vertical horizontal break I want to be achieving with this certain pitch. Yeah, and it, it's not a foreign concept to me, and I know what I have to do different. Like they're saying the different cues to say, 
here's what I need to do differently to achieve what I want. It's a good balance of being able to say, yes, I understand it. And I'm going to pay attention to it all the time. I think Nick and I speak as pretty big nerds from a number side on this podcast that you can also be able to say here, sorry, don't get offended, Duke. (laughs) But anyway, being able to understand what you're looking at behind the numbers as well, just so they're not just a foreign concept to you as like, I just have to listen, whatever the coach is saying with this stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of people don't really understand the numbers for like actually what they are. Um, like I've talked to so many players from both organizations that I was with where they don't really understand exactly what what certain things mean. And it's like, if you really understood that, like you could, you could use that to your advantage if you actually understood that concept. You could go out there and pitch to that, to that knowledge. So I, I only think that could help. Uh, where I think that it can be a, like, what cannot benefit a player is if they're only caring about the numbers and they're not caring about the results that they get on the field because at the end of the day that's what matters it no one cares if you go out there and you throw a 20 bird fastball and like a negative 20 sweeper if you can't throw it in the zone you can't execute it and guys are and like guys are smoking it like no one cares i'm sorry like it, it, it it's cool on paper but the results don't don't show for it then you might as well just go be a PE teacher or something like that i don't know Right. It's the perfect balance between execution yeah. and it's like, yeah, maybe if the numbers look great today, maybe my execution just sucked versus, yeah, exactly. you know, the slider didn't look good, but, you know, no, I executed. It's like, all right, how do I balance between the numbers? But I didn't like the numbers, but also I turned around and I executed and I had a six innings of shutout baseball. It's like, it's like finding the balance between them. In that situation, you'd be like, OK, I had six innings of shutout baseball. Like, how can I get my numbers to be a little bit better? Maybe that result goes to like seven innings, eight innings. Maybe I get a few less foul balls. I can go deeper into the game, stuff like that. So like, there's always like the nitty gritty of the game that you can go into, but you just kind of got to, you know, chill with it sometimes. Right. Make sure you're not, I think that's always the big thing with, and it's the big complaint amongst the fans is like, when does it become too overwhelming to where you're forgetting the wins and losses on the field still do matter? Let me ask you guys this. Uh, this is a completely tangent. From a fan's perspective, do you guys like having the... Because I know that they're starting to put all like that data on the scoreboard for the fans. Do you guys like that? Because like from our perspective, we always talk about this. Like, Do they understand what that even is? Like, Do they understand launch angle or do they understand spin axis or like induced vertical break? Like, do the fans under- actually understand that? I-, I think it all depends. Being able to like contextualize what that means yeah it it is actually very helpful especially like you brought up launch angle that's that's a big one you know honestly you know anybody who can kind of go back and forth between like the old school mentality and looking at advanced like metrics they're gonna appreciate that where i kind of like look at the scoreboard sometimes and cringe is when there are teams that are putting like such advanced like down the road metrics up there that just like don't really give any context to the like what the players doing on day to day basis. Like, I think if they made it a little bit more easily digestible for like the common fan, I think it would go better. But I don't know. I I just don't think the common fans really gonna pick that up for sure. I completely disagree personally. As but but the the difference is you're looking at the two different perspectives of where people come from. I both I, I think I can speak for Nick as well when I say both of us just will study baseball savant religiously at times. I love diving into that stuff. And I think it's good from the standpoint of fan education. You know, not every fan is going to see it and care. And yeah, like Duke's saying, some people 
like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I think it opens up a world for potential education of like, oh, what does that mean? And then diving into it and getting more interested in it. Baseball savant having like more triple A numbers. Trust me. I love diving into those too. So it's like, it's going to absolutely depend on who you ask. I think it probably can do more good than harm as long as you're not overwhelming with. And I think that's what we talked about this entire time is don't be overwhelming with the data because then it, it turns certain people off who either don't understand it or just, you know, don't, don't or it's just too much information at once, essentially. Yeah, but also at the same time, I think that, like, I'm I'm that, that weirdo who at a game will say to my girlfriend, like, oh, that was probably hit at, like, 98 exit velo with like 15 degree launch angle and before before i would have to check on my phone to see if i was right now it tells me in real time and it's helpful as a fan because if everyone's thinking oh this is a home run and like everyone's getting up and starting to cheer and i'm like nope it's 42 degrees like it's probably not even worn crap <laughs> like i hate to be the buzzkill sometimes but like for the super nerds out there it, it can be appreciated what i think that they should do because you can do this for like we have this they have the trackman numbers in the dugout I think that for the fans, they should like if they want to like charge the fans to look at the trackman data during the game. That would honestly be pretty sick because then you can see like everything in real time, pitch to pitch. You can see like the exact velocity, like ninety seven two, or like you can see the actual like like you know negative induced vertical break on a curveball, or like the actual the positive vertical break on a fastball, or like you know if a dude does a crazy slide, crochet throws a crazy slider, you're like, oh, that was twenty horizontal. That was gross. It's like you can see something like that. I think that'd be kind of dope. I just thought about that. They would make a lot of money off of that. They would make a lot of money. Yes. Yeah, they would make a lot of money. That's actually, I might bring that up to guests. I think that's actually a really cool idea. Yeah. You want it? Here it is. If not, don't even worry about it. I really like that idea, actually. I guess just kind of closing out here, we've covered quite a bit, Nick. We've taken up quite a bit of your time. Definitely appreciate it. It's been good talking ball, and you've given us a lot of really good insight. Short of being World Series MVP, winning the Cy Young next year, having the lowest ERA in baseball, leading in strikeouts and wins, you know, all the things that are very, very possible for you, buddy. What's a successful 2024 season? Like, what do you want to see out of yourself to like, like, what are your goals? Like, what, what are like some personal things you want to accomplish? What are things that will have you looking back on this upcoming season once it's done and thinking, oh, I'm really, really excited about where I'm at? I mean, obviously, I would. The elephant in the room is making my debut. Um, that's something that I really want to do, and I'm really looking forward to do. Especially like we were talking about earlier, like dreaming of playing professional baseball at a young age, and like you know, it being in your backyard, and like all right, three two World Series, like bottom of the ninth. I only hit a home run here. Um, you know, everybody has that uh, or that situation running through their head. So making my major league debut, I feel like, would be something that. Uh, is definitely on the goal list um, and sticking there, uh, not being a player that goes up and down. I feel like that would, that would be something that I would be very proud of. Getting up there, sticking there, being there, and actually contributing and doing something for the team that actually matters and winning ball games. Um, I just want to go up there and win. I want to help the White Sox win as many games as I possibly can, as many games I'm playing in, whatever that is. I just want to go out there and win. So that's definitely a few of my goals. Um, I have some nitty-gritty ones. Uh that I've drawn up as far as like, you know, just like stuff that I don't know if everybody would understand, but stuff that I understand. So, um, so I have some smaller goals or more focused goals, I would say. Uh, but yeah, those make my debut and stick in there, which are two, two pretty big ones for the 2024 season for sure. Yeah. And would love to see on the South side this year. Trust me.
our final question to you. We're trying something different with uh, uh, guests on the show, and we're don't we don't know what the segment's going to be called. It's rapid fire questions. We got nine of them, something around nine innings. We're going to have fun with that eventually. Just want quick answer. You don't need an explanation for it. Ready? <laughs> Go for it. All right. Number one. Name one activity on your bucket list. Skydiving. All right. So that's going to help one of the other answers here. What big league hitter are you most excited to face? Bryce Harper. Which actor would play you in a movie about your life? Mm. Glenn Powell. What job <laughs> would you want or what have you... <laughs> Duke's loving that one. Duke's loving that one. <laughs> I don't know. He's just. I thought it was a good answer. I was ready to keep going. What what job would you want or what job would you think you would have if you weren't an athlete? If I weren't an athlete, something in the military. Okay, nice. Deep sea diving or skydiving? Skydiving. It's awesome. Highly recommend. Friday night, stay in or go out? Stay in, for sure. Go-to cheat meal? In and out. Okay, I'm going to stop real quick. I know it ruins the segment. Are you someone like it is the greatest thing in the world in and out? Or are you like, oh, it's pretty good. Absolutely. I, it's not the greatest thing on planet Earth. Like if people want to debate me, if like, you know, your local burger chain's better or like five guys is better in and out, I'll happily have that debate. I'll always come down. It'll always come down to the cost. Like in and out. I can go there right now, get three like double doubles, two fries and milkshake for 18 bucks. But if I want to get the same thing at five guys, it's going to cost me 40. So it's like, all right, do you want to spend an arm and a leg? Do you want to like, actually make it affordable? Very fair point. Last two. Do you put ketchup on a hot dog? Yeah. All right. You're going to get some uh, flack for that one. Remember, you're pitching in Chicago now coming forward. Is that like a, a thing you're not supposed to do? It's a thing in Chicago that, yeah, ketchup on the hot dog, not really a big. If it's like the only thing, I think you get more flack for it than if it's like amongst many things. If you're just like. There's a lot of hot dog stands in Chicago that will flat out not serve you if you ask for ketchup on your hot dog actually like if you what if i only want ketchup on it is that true dude you're better off ordering it plain and bringing ketchup from home honestly <laughs> that's the most wild thing of all time i've never heard of that just a word of advice i've never heard of that that's weird you'll right. thank us later see you we've learned so much now right. we had to thank teach you, you something me know. Thank you for, <laughs> i'm coming on wednesday so thank you for letting me know for and final question first start of your major league career what's your walkout song gonna be i was thinking about this yesterday actually or two days ago I really don't know. I haven't, I haven't come to a conclusion yet. I mean, I I, I want to I want to be Fat Bobby Girls by Queen, but my mom would never let that happen. Um, <laughs> I brought it up to her. I wanted to do it in college. She was like, absolutely not. So, you know, maybe that, but if I can convince her. But I don't know. I'm not sure yet. It is your major league debut. It is. It is. You only mom, get one of those. But I have to make my mama proud. So That's true. That is true. I think those were successful answers. Skydiving, I, I've done it. You'll love it. It's awesome. If it's something you want to do, it's either that or swimming with great white sharks. That would be pretty dope. That is awesome. Because I feel like I've already done that already when I'm surfing, but I just don't see them. Um, I want to like, actually see them. That's awesome. Coming off like an adrenaline junkie right now. It's almost like you pitch in uh, professional baseball or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely am an adrenaline junkie, but I have to keep it under control uh, closer to the season. Well, all right, Nick, uh, despite your catch-up answer, it's been great having you on the show, buddy. Be sure to, I don't know if you've ever had, like, an Italian beef. Have you ever had one? Yeah, I am Italian, so I have had one. 
Okay. All right. So, all right. So you probably know good Italian beef. Go get one of those for your next cheat meal. And it's just something different in Chicago. There's three, four places I can tell you after the show. I don't want to screw up any potential sponsorship in the future, but there's some, there's some really good spots. Also, <laughs> really good burger that would put in and out to shame, but that's discussion for another day. Anyway, Nick, it's been awesome. Like I said, we, uh, we've taken up more than enough of your time, but uh, it, it's been great having you on, buddy. We're looking forward to seeing you on the, on the Major League Mound here pretty soon, and uh, we're really excited about uh, seeing what you can do for the organization. Sweet. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, potentially in the future, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We will be back as we cover more White Sox off-season baseball. Thank you and go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox.